Good morning, everybody. I'm Sam Kastensmith. I'm the pastor of spiritual formation here at Rio and also campus pastor at Bethany Christian School. And it's really good uh, to be here with you this morning. We are continuing in a series that's called 21 Questions. And as Matt said, the most common question that we got that we decided, you know, let's, let's spend some time here is on the question of why a good God would allow suffering. We all, we all know suffering. Or we know people who are going through intense suffering. And let's be honest, like when, when we're confronted with this question, it's really hard. We, we want to say, why God? Why would you do that? Like, why would you allow that? And especially if it's a really good person. If it's just a wonderful person that, that doesn't deserve this, we want to kind of raise our fist at God and say, why in the world would you ever allow this to happen? And as we walk in Christ, there's really only kind of three alternatives that you can come to. And the first one is the accusatory one where it says, you know what, he just, he doesn't care. That's awful. That's totally out of line with Scripture But some people reach that point where they go, I can't come to any other conclusion. And so they accuse God of not caring. At points, Job will launch that accusation as we talk about his circumstances today. And the next one comes and says, well, God is, is, he doesn't like suffering. He wishes, you know, that there was no suffering, but he's not, he's not in control and he's reacting to suffering and he's, he's trying to come behind and clean it up, but he's not really in control. He's surprised by it. And I don't know about you, but that's a terrifying thought to me, that God is not sovereign and has no power and can't control and ordain all things to work together for his glory and my good. And the third one, which is also hard to stomach, but it's true and it's the most beautiful, is that God works all of your suffering together all of your circumstances together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. There is not one instance of suffering in your life that is meaningless or wasted. God is sovereign over it. He is not surprised by it. And he is using it to weave a beautiful thing for you. You know, yesterday was a very, very hard emotional day for me, especially as we're considering this question of suffering and knowing that I've got to preach today on this topic of suffering. Yesterday morning began with me going to the funeral of a very good friend of mine. And she is a mother of four, a wife to a beloved husband, incredible marriage. And a year and a half ago, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. That's her. And her husband, TP, and her four little babies. And I look at that, and everybody who's in this church that's packed, I mean, everybody lining around the walls, there's standing room only, they're in the the lobby watching the service on TV because this woman was so beloved. And she was so beloved because she was like the epitome of kindness. She was a nurse. She, I mean, I could give you her resume. She fostered seven kids. 
She adopted one. She served on the board of the homeless ministry for Indian River County. She read her Bible every morning. Epitome of kindness. She served as a youth group mentor. She went on mission trips. In fact, as she was approaching her death, as her body was beginning to fail her, and they were saying, you need to be placed in hospice care. She said, not yet. I want to go on one more mission trip for Christ. But it wasn't to be. She fell into a coma and died two days later. Why would God allow Regina to be afflicted with pancreatic cancer? Why would God ignore the thousands, not ignore, why would God hear and choose not to answer the thousands of prayers that said, oh man, she can't leave her babies. She's too precious to the church. She's too precious to the community. She's too precious to, to TP. Like what? Why would he not answer? And so we, we want to raise our fist and say, like, I want an answer here. Like, who are you? Who am, who am I worshiping? Can I, can I look at you in the midst of that and looking at all the tears that are being shed in this horrible suffering of the loss of such a precious woman? Can I look at that and sing, you are perfect in all of your ways? I mean, when we get to the heart of deep suffering, can we sing, you are perfect in all of your ways? Johnny Erickson Tata was a, 52 years ago, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay into a place that was more shallow than she thought. Broke her spinal column, was a quadriplegic, couldn't move her arms and legs, and she spent the next two years after this incident miserable, wondering why would God allow this to such a young, beautiful person with so much potential? Why would he leave me in a chair with no use of my arms and legs? And for two years, she despaired and she argued and she was angry and then, and even contemplated suicide, and then she had this beautiful encounter with Christ that changed her life and made her start a ministry that's devoted to going to other people that were in the same condition that she was and to show them that there is something more precious than even life or health itself, and that's Christ. And was so precious to her, she writes things like, I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do then be on my feet without him. And 10 words have set the course of my life and I want you to just absorb these into your heart. It's gonna be the premise of this whole sermon. 10 words have set the course for my life. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. So we enter into the story of Job, which when you think about suffering outside of Jesus, this is the guy that when you say suffering, it's like, oh, Job. Job, man, he went through it. And God gives us this book, this book of Job, and he doesn't sugarcoat anything in it. In fact, when you read it, you find yourself wanting to apologize for God. Can I just say that as a pat? Like, it makes me want to go, oh, don't do that. Don't do, no, 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 no. Don't do that, God. 
And he allows suffering, he ordains suffering to come into the life of Job and we cringe at that because we can't make sense of it. But God comes and he paints Job in the early chapters of this book, just so we know who we're dealing with. God comes and brags on Job in his inspired word. He paints the picture of a man that we would all long to be. Somebody that every city wants to have, every church wants to have as their elder. Who is this guy? Well, we're told he's, he's a Gentile from Uz, which means he's not an Israelite. He's a foreigner. He's one of the greatest men of the East. That's, these are God's words and descriptions. Blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He offers sacrifices for his kids every day. He's, he worships God regularly. He's married. He's got 10 kids. He's a respected elder for the town council. He's universally beloved. He assisted widows and orphans, and he was generous to the disabled, and he cared for strangers, and he protected the innocent, and he's merciful to the penitent. He's a source of great wisdom, and he is trusted by his countrymen. And so you think, man, if there was ever anybody that should be off limits, like this guy's too good. He's too good. This story is designed, ordained in history and designed to make us uncomfortable when the Lord allows severe affliction to fall on this guy. And we're left going, what in the world, God? But like Job, we, we can't see all the infinite wisdom behind God's decisions. And so God ordains this book with all the ugliness All the cries, all the the warts, the agony, the wounds, the harsh exchanges to be included in the scriptures. And it's real. It's raw. And at times you want to cringe. But the book ultimately calls you to trust God when you don't understand. So this is how the, the story begins. And It says, the Lord said to Satan, hey, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And so even the name Satan means the accuser. And what's he after? He's going all over the place. He's searching for people to cause them to stumble and curse God and to fall into wickedness. That's his mission. And the next verse is stunning. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Wait, what? You mean God volunteers. It's like, hey, have you considered this guy? He's awesome. He's the greatest in the East. He's upright. He's blameless. He fears God, shuns evil, does all the right things. He's merciful. His character's beautiful. Have Have you considered him? And everything in us goes, whoa, no, 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 no. This, this, this can't be. Job's too good. But God points him out because of his goodness. Oof. Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And everything in us, if we're honest, in that moment wants to say to God, man, if that's how you treat your friends, I'm not sure I, I want to be part of this. And Satan answers the Lord and said, and hear this, 
Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Let me translate that. Yeah, you can, you can show me how great Job is and how he's got a heart to serve you and shun evil and all this stuff. But let me tell you something. Job loves you and all your people love you because you bless them and because you protect them. Take that away and see what they do. They will curse you to your face. And I always used to read this passage, and this is huge. This, is, this will change the way you see this story. It doesn't make it perfectly beautiful, but the alternative is awful. Here's the way I used to read that story. That God and, and Satan are, are paired up and Satan says, yeah, Job will turn away from you if you take away all the blessings and protections. And God is coming on the other side saying, hmm, this is an interesting wager. I don't really care about Job. Let him go through that. But let's see who wins. I think Job can stand up to that. No. That is not what is going on in the story. And if you read the story like that, then all of a sudden God becomes like, what are you doing? Like, do you not have compassion? Here's the way the story goes. Satan comes to God and he says, ah, these people only love you because you give them blessing, you give them protection. But let me tell you this, you take all that away. And when I say all blessings, what's included in that? Everything you've got is a blessing. Take it away. Take your protection away. They'll curse you to your face. And you know what God never does? Nuh-uh. He never disagrees. And the reality behind this, we see this in Romans chapter 3. When Satan says, your people don't love you for you, they love you for what you can give. The reality is, in God's heart, he's standing back going, I know. I know. But in the infinite supreme wisdom of God, he also knows how to change that. It doesn't come through more prosperity. We don't respond to more prosperity. God, in his infinite wisdom, knows that if he brings suffering to us, we begin to see all the other things that we held as the most precious things in our lives, we see that they're not, and He is. It changes the way we experience things, but that's God's ultimate wisdom. And so, God is like, He's a master of judo. This is not a wager between God and Satan. I want you to hear this. When Satan comes and says, I believe that everybody's going to turn against you. God's not entering into a wager. He's taking Satan's evil scheming and he's using that weight against him. And as Satan goes against Job, God will use that wickedness to overthrow Satan and to bring about something beautiful in Job and to those around Job. He uses our suffering and ordains them that something far more beautiful for us and for those around us will come about. So God hears Satan say, they only love you because of what you give and what you protect. And God says, okay, you can't take his life, but you can afflict him. And you're going, whoa. 
And so here's the story. Job is sitting around in his house and a messenger comes and the first messenger says, hey, the Sabaeans have come and they've taken away all of your oxen and donkey, all your industry, your wealth, your business. Then as he's finishing up delivering this really bad news, the next messenger comes in and he says, hey, fire from heaven just fell or lightning fell and it killed your sheep and your shepherds. And Job's going, oh my goodness. And then the next messenger comes in all within this scheme of minutes. And says, hey, the Chaldeans came and stole all of your camels and your servants, and I alone escaped. And he's going, all of my stuff, all my wealth, all my industry, all my business. And then the fourth one comes in with the most devastating news of all. And this is where we go, God, like, He says, a mighty wind came and hit the edges or the corners of the house where your sons and daughters were, and the house collapsed and all of your kids are dead. And Job in that moment knows this isn't just coincidence. He says this comes from the hand of God. And you know what the author, the inspired author of Job says? And all that he said, he did not sin. In other words, yes. And we're left going, ooh, can I look at that and still sing, it is perf- you are perfect in all of your ways? We want to raise our fist and say, no way. But you know what Job does? Like, this is wild. This man is incredible. He shaves his head. He tears his clothes. He goes out and sits on, he says, and he said, naked, I came from my mother's womb. I came with nothing. Everything I've gotten since then is all by the hand of God's grace. And naked, I'll return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you think, man, could I do that? In the midst of that suffering, believing that that suffering was allowed and ordained from the hand of God for me, could I look at that and say, you are perfect in all of your ways. You gave, you took, blessed be the name of the Lord. And you're stunned, you look at Job and you're like, I can't believe how amazing this guy is. And then the next thing comes, Satan comes back and says, all right, well, maybe he did okay with that one, but that's all stuff that surrounds him. It's all his money, it's all his wealth, it's all his oxen, it's all his camels and everything else around him and it's, it's his kids, but it's not him personally. Hit him with an affliction, hit him with health problems and things like that and I promise he will curse you to your face. And at this point you're going, all right, God, Uncle, stop, stop, like now's a good time. This guy has just shown amazing faith and you know what God does and it makes us really uncomfortable. He says, you may afflict him. And so Job is infected with sores all over his body, which in the ancient world meant that he was unclean. He couldn't be in part of community. He goes out and he sits on the ash heap where they would burn all the refuse and trash and he's counting himself as the trash and he takes the pottery shards and he's scraping away the boils that are on his skin and these three friends come and they sit around waiting to see if he's gonna be healed within those first seven days and be allowed to come back and when he's not, man, these three friends just start launching accusation bombs. And here's what they're thinking. They're probably thinking the same thing that all of us are struggling with right now. In this scenario, if Job is suffering this bad, somebody's got to be a monster. It's either Job is a monster and he deserves what he's getting. Like, help us, just tell us that he did something really wicked and terrible and then we'll be okay with this. 
But God comes to us and says he's blameless, he's upright, he's just, he's a good man, he shuns evil, he fears God, he's not the problem here. And that leaves us with this. If Job's not the monster, is God the monster? And this whole book is this agonizing debate about whether God is just, if, whether God is the monster, if God has purpose behind all this. And if we're honest, we're sitting in here going, huh, I don't know what to make of that. God is not the monster. God is using the afflictions of Job to bring about something that Job and his three friends can't possibly conceive of, something far more beautiful than they can imagine in the midst of this suffering. Here's a sampling of Job's laments as he sits there because he wrestles with God. He's, he's back and forth and he's honest and I love the fact that the Bible includes things like this in the scriptures because what God is telling us is this is okay. Wrestle with me when you don't understand what I don't want you to do is walk away and give up and say I don't know what to do with this and I quit. I'm walking away. I'm done with you God. But God delights when we don't know we grab hold of him and wrestle even if it means we're angry. God is okay with that. And so he hears Job say things, accusatory things, like he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but he fills me with bitterness. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks. Now, this isn't true, but from Job's perspective, this is what he's thinking in the moment, and he cries it out. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. Why did you bring me out of the womb? But then he ultimately keeps landing at faith. He can't let go of God. And he says, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him, but I will argue my ways to his face. And all of these arguments, I want you to hear this. This man is awesome. He is beloved of God. Deeply, deeply beloved of God, even though it might be hard to see in this particular moment. And all of this wrestling, all of these arguments are not evidence against Job's faith. Oh man, way to the contrary. All of this is evidence of Job's faith. He won't let go. He can't stand the thought that God is moving away from him. Wrestle, argue. This book is God's permission for us to do that. And so then what happens? You, get, you start getting this, this picture of who Job is and you start seeing what Job loves. Like, where is he most crushed? Because he's suffered all kinds of physical torment. He's lost his kids. His wife came to him and said, curse God and die. All the people of the town have walked away from him. And you start getting, like, what is it that is just crushing Job the most and all these sufferings? And I want you to listen to his own words and see what God is beginning to do in him. Job says, I delivered the poor who cried for help, the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me. I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I searched out the cause of him who did not know I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. And you look at all of these things that Job is saying, man, remember when life was like this? I used to, this was who I was. Why am I suffering? I don't get it. And you pause for a moment 
and the initial wager of this book should hit you like a ton of bricks. Satan comes to God and says, people only love you because you bless them and you protect them. You stop that and they will curse you to your face. And now here's Job. And he doesn't get it. He's like, I, what, what happened? I, I took care of the oppressed. I took care of the, the needy. I, I, I watched out for people. I, I, I was feet to the lame. I was eyes to the blind. I was so kind. I protected. I, I blessed. And what has happened? My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. My breath is strange to my wife, and I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. And I want you to stop here because this is what Job is experiencing. He is learning what it's like to walk in the shoes of our God. Oh man, I blessed them. I, took, I looked out for the needy. I went after the widow and the orphan and, and I, was, I was feet to the lame and I was eyes to the blind and I did all, these are all descriptives of God that you find in the Psalms and, and scattered all around the Bible. Job is describing himself in all the ways that God was. I did all these things. I blessed them and I protected them. But now that I can't do that anymore, they all curse me to my face. Job is learning what it's like to walk in the shoes of God. And so he offers up this plea. He says, oh, that I were as in the months of old when I went out to the gate of the city. That's where all the decisions were made. The young men, they saw me and they withdrew. They got out of my way. I was so respected. I was like, oh, make way. Here comes Job. And the aged rose and stood and princes refrained from talking and laid their hand over their mouth like up Job is going to speak. And when the ear heard, it called me blessed. When the eye saw, it approved. And men listened to me and waited and kept silent for my counsel. And after I spoke, they did not speak again. And my word, when my word dropped upon them, they waited for me as for rain. And I chose their way and I sat as their chief. And I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. Can you hear the heart of God in that? Let me tell you, let me translate what's going on with Job. He's saying, man, I... I have done so much good for these people. I have poured out. I've used my wealth to bless them. I, I've shown compassion to them. I've looked after the least of these. And, and all of their interactions with me, I've proven myself faithful to them again and again and again. And I drew near to the oppressed and I did all these things. And yet, and when people heard my words, man, they trusted it. They knew my heart and so they could hear hard things and they would just accept it. But now... Now that they can't make sense of what's going on, now they spit at me. Can you hear like God in that saying, man, have I been faithful to you? Look at all the giftings I've given you. Look at all these wonderful things that I've surrounded your life with. Look at all the ways that I've protected you. Every blessing you have is from my hand. 
And now this one thing comes along, this one suffering or two or three or four comes along. And you look at me and you want to spit and you want to shake your fist at me. Do you remember who I am? I miss those days. Come back to me. Trust me. Remember what my heart is all about. And even as Job is looking at everyone else saying, man, I remember when they just accepted and trusted my heart. And yet at the same time, what is he doing to God? I don't trust you anymore. I don't know what to make of this, God. Why would you allow this? I, and then he finally just said, let, let, the, let the Almighty answer me. I demand an answer. Man, this guy is amazing. And he's struggling. And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, will you condemn me that you may be right, that you may be in the right? And let me just, let me rephrase this kind of question. What God is doing is coming to Job and I want you, I want to let this land on you because it's a hard question. He's saying, Job, whose name matters more to you, yours or mine? He's saying, Job, whose reputation matters more to you, yours or mine? Would you condemn me? Would you condemn me in order to be right in everybody else's eyes? Do you not trust me? Job, you have such a limited, and he shows him all the sovereignty of God and the way he creates and the way he takes care of all the animals and all the minutia, the particular, of how amazingly complex his sovereignty is. And he just shows it all to Job, right? And it's like he's saying, Job, you have such a limited perspective for your suffering. Do you really believe the worst about me? And I can see the end. I love you. Trust me in this. And so Job replies to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Surely I've spoke of things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And then here is the key verse that turns Job around in the midst of his sufferings. He says, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Man, you can go to seminary, you can sit in Bible studies, you can do all this stuff where you hear of God, but until you see him, until you experience him and you know his goodness, you can't walk through this with clarity and trust and hope and unshakable faith. And it makes me wonder, what did Job see when he looks into the whirlwind and he sees God? What about it makes Job go, okay, I totally trust. I'm at peace. It's yours. What does he see? Does he see like the infinite sovereignty of God, the infinite wisdom, the infinite mercy, the infinite love? Does he look into the eyes of God and see such intense compassion that he realizes this same God loves me to such a degree that he would go to a cross for me? And if he can see the end and know all things and he loves me that much, then I don't understand this suffering and I don't have an answer for it, but I trust you in it. That's hard to do. That takes amazing faith. But you can't have amazing faith unless you see him. Man, he is good and he is beautiful and he is for you. 
And so Job then confronts his friends, and I love this. Job just kind of melts. He's at peace. He's saying, okay, God, I had all these other things that, that really mattered to me more than you, but now I see you and you're all I need. And then he goes and he confronts Job's friends who've been brutal, right? Because they're saying, you must have done something wrong. You had to have sinned because God wouldn't put you here if you weren't a mess. And God's saying, no, he didn't. There's no, no particular sin that caused this. And so when God shows up, he looks at the friends and he's like, not only have you maligned Job for assuming that he had to have done something wrong, you've maligned me. Because you've said that the only way I can be just and allow suffering as if the person is wicked, and that's not the case. I am using suffering to paint a beautiful picture that Job could never have seen, that we could never have seen, but in his infinite wisdom, he sees something far grander. And so he says, the Lord answered, or I'm sorry, my servant Job will pray for you. I love that. Here's these guys that feel like they're the religious stewards of everything right, and they're accusing Job, and God comes on the scene and says, hey, you three, not too happy about what you've been saying about him or me. My servant Job, hear that. Oh man, how that had to just land on Job's ears. My servant Job will pray for you. And he's been spending 42 chapters begging God to hear him. And God says, I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. Job's words are precious to me. I've heard them all. His prayers tug on my heartstrings, even when he didn't get an answer. And Job's tears, all those tears, all that agony ultimately reaps a harvest. And I love this. Remember all those people who passed by him and cursed and spat and the kids and everybody else and his wife saying, curse God and die and his brothers have walked away from him. And at the end of this story, it doesn't explain what's going on here, but it just tells us this brief kind of passage. It says, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before and then came to him and then came to him all of his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and they ate bread with him in his house. What do you think they talked about? I can guarantee you what was on the lips of Job. Man, he is good. I have seen him and he's enough. He is far greater than anything else I could chase in this life. He satisfies. He's wonderful. And so think of this. God allowed this righteous, good, wonderful man to suffer. One, to enrich Job. We see that, right? But he allows Job to suffer. Why? For the sake of everyone around him. To bring about beauty to them. And if we're walking after Jesus, should we be surprised that he calls us to suffer to bring about good to others? Think about who Job's become. In the midst of all the suffering, what does God do with this suffering in his life? Tell me if this sounds familiar, okay? Job suffers because he's good. Job suffers the assaults of Satan. He's betrayed by his closest friends. His bride despises him and tells him to curse God. He undergoes physical torment. He's despised by those he has blessed. He's mocked by those he sought to protect. He's falsely accused by hypocrites. He cries to God and finds silence. He knows the pain of losing a son. 
His prayer secures the forgiveness of those around him as those who have become enemies. And his sufferings lead to the redemption of many. Who did I just describe? That's our Savior. God brings this suffering into the life of Job to make him more like himself. Why? So that he can accomplish beautiful things that Job could have never seen at the onset of all this. God is a master. And if we, he's a masterful artist. And if we invest our sufferings in him, he will do amazing things with them. And we stop here for a moment and we say, well, uh, good grief, like, uh, what, God still doesn't do that right now. We have Jesus. And here's what happens at the end of the gospel. Jesus looks at Peter and listen to what he says. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And you go, whoa, this still happens? Well, surely God's going to say, and I said no. Like, please? No. What does Jesus say? Satan has demanded to have you to he sift you like wheat, but I have prayed that your faith may not fail. He doesn't say, I've put you off limits. I've said, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you know what? Peter looks at all of this suffering and says, he's worth it. At the end of it, he's, he's been imprisoned. He's been persecuted. He's been ultimately crucified upside down. And when he writes his epistle, he says to all of us, it's worth it. He writes, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in the faith. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. And hear that. He has allowed you to suffer a little while. Why? So that he can bring about an eternal glory. Eternal glory for you. He's the master of this. He allows the enemy to put his son on a cross. Why? So that he can use that evil scheme against him, overthrow it, and bring life and liberty to all men. This is how our God works. He redeems our suffering. He makes them not meaningless. And when you have that perspective of God, you can write letters like my friend Regina wrote on the day when she was diagnosed with cancer. She sent out an announcement to all of her friends. And she writes this. So what do you do when you're diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer at the age of 38? You have your share of ugly cries and then you decide to put, up, put big girl pants on so that you can fight. You don't ask the doctors how much time you have because you're here on God's time and he says when it's time to go. You wake up each morning and think, I have today. And then you praise God that it is so. You pray fervently for healing, the right treatment, that you'll live long enough to see your, your babies leave the house and to celebrate many more years of marriage to the incredible man who walks by your side. You ask God not to let this diagnosis be in vain, but to use it as an opportunity to help others. You begin to wonder and then ask God what you can do for him with the card that you've been dealt. You give thanks and praise and believe that come what may, he's with you every step of the way. Because of that, you will have victory no matter what. If you really trust in him, you find that you have peace in your heart 
because it is well with your soul. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for being so good, even in our sufferings, even when we can't understand. Lord, we can sing with confidence. You are a good, good Father. You are perfect in all of your ways. And we thank you, Lord, for the confidence of knowing that our sufferings, however trivial, however major, are never wasted when they're invested in you. You're the ultimate artist. You turn mud puddles into masterpieces. You turn our worst into things that are beautiful. You turn our suffering for a little while into an eternal weight of glory. Lord, I pray that you would give us the confidence of faith that when we walk through suffering, we would cling to you, knowing that you are working all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. You are good, God, and we thank you. We lift this up in Christ's name. Amen.